Uh, the scripture reading this morning comes from Mark 10, 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. We have been going through a sermon series, even in our preview services that we were doing monthly on the encounters with Jesus. And it's been a really uh, fruitful series for me. I hope it has been for you as well. Um, it's amazing to me how often we can come back to Scripture and it seems to be speaking into the very things that we're going through that day or that week or in ways that we don't know how it's going to be speaking into it as well. Every time we spend uh, every time we spend time in the Word of God, he speaks to us. It's encountering God's presence and who Jesus is. It's one of those few books not only do we read, but it reads us as well, which is why it's not the most efficient thing out there to continue to come back to it and come back to it over and over again. Efficiency is one is the highest virtue in our modern culture. Uh, there's a book that I'm reading about this, You Are Not Your Own by Alan Noble. It's, ab- it's absolutely fantastic, but he, he painstakingly, like both me and through the book a little bit, goes through how efficiency is our highest virtue, but uh, and how it's not actually uh, a a virtue in the kingdom of God. So efficiency being the highest virtue in our modern culture, we develop techniques to be more efficient. We have these phones that are mini computers. We have our computers. We have cars. We have internet connections and social media accounts that all claim to help us be more efficient with our time, our meal planning, our photo sharings with our family, our food prep, our work, our sleep, our money, and our play as well. We evaluate things in our lives by how they improve our efficiency. And if it's not efficient, then we often throw it away. The problem with efficiency is kids. Kids are not efficient. Children might be the least efficient beings ever created. And just so we're clear, we were all kids at one point. Some of us are just giant kids now. Kids are constantly distracted by the least important details in life. They have no concept of time or efficiency. This is why you can say, hey, five more minutes, and you can, get, you can then start moving on after one minute or ten. You, you, as the parent, you kind of get to set the parameters of it. My question, though, is why on earth does it take an hour to get kids ready for bed every night? It's the same routine. We change nothing about it, but somehow every night they find a new way to distract themselves. It's either the perfect time to start sorting baseball cards or to invent a new way of jumping on the bed or just time for them to scream and run away as if we are don't even exist as parents maybe like Evelyn quite often just we walk in her room and she's still fully clothed after several minutes and she's just staring at herself in the mirror (laughs) what are you doing I'm just looking at myself okay 
All right. Not the time for that. Um, but this might be the longest hour uh, plus, hour plus of my day. Children are anything but efficient. It's not their value to be efficient, and it's not a value in the kingdom of God either, which is probably why Jesus says, to such belong the kingdom of God. They haven't been distracted with efficiency yet. So what qualifies them to be arbiters of the kingdom of God? Nothing. Nothing qualifies them, and that's the point. They teach us that there is nothing we can bring to God to earn entrance into the kingdom. There is no technique. There is no achievement. There is nothing. It is our need, our just our bare need, that qualifies us for the kingdom. I think as adults, we get so distracted by so many things. Just in the context of our passage, all around it, you see Jesus answering questions about adult life that's going on. He's teaching on divorce. The disciples are arguing who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And you have this rich young ruler who comes to Jesus right after this passage. And he asks the question, Jesus, what do I have to do to get into the kingdom of God? All the things that you're telling me I need to do, I've done already. And Jesus says, sell everything. And he goes away sad. I think at this point, Jesus then addresses his disciples and calls them children. And he asks them, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? In verse 14, in our passage, Jesus actually has answered his own question. He says, let the little children come to me, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. People were bringing their, ki- their children to Jesus so that he could touch them and he could bless them. But the disciples were rebuking them. He was turning, they were turning them away. Presumably, I think they thought the kids were the distraction. But Mark says Jesus became indignant about this. This is one of the few things that we see in the Gospels that Jesus gets angry about. He gets angry about the temple being turned into a mall rather than a place of worship. He gets angry at religious condemnation of other people who are trying to find their way to to God. He gets angry at empty religiosity, and he gets angry when kids are turned away. What does this mean when Jesus says, to such belong the kingdom of of heaven? We can interpret it as being childlike. Right? They have this sense of wonder and innocence, a curiosity, and a complete lack of pretense. Children are incredibly trusting, reliant, hopeful, and malleable. But they also interrupt. They don't know when the right time to come and ask something. They say inappropriate things all the time. They want attention. They don't know right from wrong yet. They're still learning what it means to be appropriate. But the most basic trait in children, especially little children, which is the word used here, is that they're helpless. They're the most vulnerable, the most powerless, the most um, exposed in this world. They can do nothing on their own, and they are constantly in need. It's to these, the powerless, the vulnerable, the helpless, to whom the kingdom of God belongs. Kids need, right? Kids need so much. They need our attention. They need our help. They need our love. 
But of course, they ask it in the weirdest ways, right? They need us to pick up after them constantly. They somehow know how to pull all the toys out, but they don't know how to reverse the process and put all the toys back. They need a new toy after the just having a birthday or Christmas celebration. They need a snack. They're constantly looking to their parents and adults to meet their needs. Joshua knows what bath time is. He understands the process of it, but he still needs us in going up there because otherwise he's jumping in the bath when the water's blazing hot and he's still fully clothed. Stacy has to help him get ready for bath time. A very simple process. He knows the routine, but he still needs help. The opposite of meeting children's needs is neglect and abuse. Abuse happens when an authority figure desires his or her good at the expense of someone else's. And unfortunately, this happens way too much. All of us, at one time or another, in a small or rather large way, have had our needs abused. Someone in authority used us to meet their own needs instead of meeting ours. A boss claims your work as their own. A parent takes out their frustration on their kids. Even more subtly, parents often use their children to bolster their own self-worth through sports, activities, academics, and even religion. Philip Yancey is a well-known author. He's based here. He lives here in Colorado. Um, And he just put out a memoir, Where Where the Light Fell. And it recounts a lot of the abuse that he received growing up at the hand of his mother. Not Maybe not the hand of his mother, but the mouth of his mother. His mom made a vow to God when his dad passed away that her sons would be missionaries to Africa since she as a widow could no longer go over and serve that way. She had to stay. She actually, they were in Atlanta for most of his life. Um, They stayed in Atlanta and uh, they grew up there instead. So she had to stay back. And so she said, well, God, if I can't go, I'm going to give my kids to you to be able to go. So she raised them with that intent. She based her value and worth, her own value and worth as a person in whether or not her sons followed the path that she laid out for them, rather than trying to help them discover the path that God had for them. This caused a lifetime of the boys never being good enough, never doing the right things, and always kind of being on the outs with her. She regularly verbally abused them, so much so that one son thought that she had cursed him, and he followed his own path quite away from God. Philip writes that he had to carve his own path back to God uh, as a college student and, and as an adult. See, she wanted her boys to fulfill her dream for them instead of raising them to see what God would have for them. So when they didn't follow her path, she herself was crushed by it. So where do you see yourself in this passage? Are you one of the little children trying to come to Jesus? Are you aware of your need for him? Are you one of the parents, perhaps, trying to bring your children to Jesus and feel turned away? Are you one of the disciples turning away the parents and children, preventing them from coming to Jesus? Personally, I feel like I all too often identify with the disciples. The kids need too much. I don't have time. I have more important things to do than play with my kids. And I have to constantly fight against this urge. I think we have to constantly fight against this urge. How we treat our kids has a direct effect on how they view God, whether we're 
worshiping them or whether we're abusing them. We need to remember that we ourselves are people in need of Jesus and of our Heavenly Father. And if our Heavenly Father is not too busy to spend time with us, if Jesus is the one bringing the kids to him when he seems to have so much important work to do, shouldn't we be spending time with them as well? So what does Jesus do when the kids come to him? When he finally he rebukes the disciples and he has the children come to them come to him, what does he do? Well, he blesses them and he touches them. Jesus takes the little children in his arm and he blesses them. This is more, I think, than a mere holding of them and admiring how cute they are. That's really fun to do, but I don't think that that really extends who Jesus is. This is a ritual. This is a priestly act of God. Throughout the Old Testament, we see fathers doing this with their children. Genesis tells the stories of how Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all bless their children, and they present them to God. Abraham presents Isaac to God and circumcises him as God commanded. This has biblical precedence to it. And I would argue that this is probably more than a blessing. I would call this a sacramental act. The posture that Jesus has towards little children is significant in how we understand the sacraments. So what are sacraments? As we get into this, I have a caveat. These are the positions that we have here at the table. They are historically held ones, though not like the most popular modern positions out there. There are opinions, uh, and there are a lot of opinions in the larger church and probably in this room as well that differ, uh, but they distinguish us and they should not divide us. And further, this is like, there, there are tomes written on each of the sacraments and what sacraments are to begin with. So this is merely a conversation starter. This is not the final word in it at all. So if you have questions, maybe talk to me. Don't email me. I'm not going to read. No, I just, I don't do email well. So, but don't hesitate to reach out and, and let's talk some more. So what are sacraments? Sacraments are the familial practices that Jesus instructed his followers to do as the family of God. They use, I'm going to say that again. Sacraments are the familial practices that Jesus instructed his followers to do as the family of God. They use ordinary everyday items by which God displays his divine purposes. And we affirm two sacraments, baptism and communion. So in these acts, God uses water, wine, bread, ordinary things uh, in our lives, common material substances to communicate his grace and mercy and familial love. These are our familial practices at the table and in the church. Because they communicate God's family, something about his family, and about the love that he has for his family, simply stated, when it comes to the sacraments at the table, children are welcome. Children of parents who confess Christ are a part of the family of God and therefore are invited to participate in the familial life of the church. That's who we are. The whole, the New Testament and the, the, the entire Bible uses family as an image of who God is. The very beginning, God says to Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants as many of the stars. I'm going to make your family huge. And so we are a family, and that is how we act here at the church, at the table as well. So how does this play out in baptism and communion? Well, baptism is a sign and a seal of God's promises. 
So as a sign, it proclaims God's forgiveness and our redemption in Jesus. It points to that. As a seal, it marks us as adopted children of our Heavenly Father. So in it being a sign, it points us and it reminds us of the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. As a seal, it marks us as adopted children of our Heavenly Father. This isn't a guarantee of salvation. It's not something that we base our salvation in, but it holds out the promise and hope of it. And it places an emphasis on God being the first actor in grace and salvation, even before we can acknowledge it, before we can put it into words. Our salvation is not some far-off destination, but it's something that starts now here in our lives. And hopefully, for most of us, our whole lives as well. Just as we would not leave a newborn at the hospital until he or she could not could confirm her parentage, we baptize children to confirm that he or she belongs to the family of God, and then we raise him or her into the knowledge of that salvation. So we welcome kids and infants to be baptized. Communion. Communion is the family meal. Jesus instructed his disciples to celebrate it. It reminds us of Jesus' death on the cross and feeds us spiritually. It's more than just memorial practice of looking back, and it's uh, less than reenacting his uh, death on the cross as well. So it's a mystery of what God is doing here in this meal, but we know it's a family meal. And so through his death and resurrection, because, because of that, we are brought into the family of God. So we wouldn't preclude a family member from eating a family meal. We wouldn't make the, there's, we, we call the kids ministry kids table, but there is no kids table here at the table. Again, this is not the most mainstream view. Many churches require a confession of faith before coming to the table, and not just for kids, but for adults also. There's a confirmation class or a catechism. There's an interview. You have to sit down with the elders. But if you are following in faith and repentance, you can come. You are welcome at this table, even before you can fully articulate it. And it's a good thing to be able to articulate it, but it's not a requirement of eating the family meal, of being welcomed at the table of God. Part of this comes from the philosophy that we operate with the understanding that faith is caught before it's taught. So we learn the rituals, the habits, and the practices and ways of being like Jesus before we know all the head knowledge. And being in a relationship with Christ means that we are learning more and more about him every day. It's not something that we gain all the knowledge. We don't go to seminary and we graduate and we're done. But we continually learn about who God is because it's a relationship. It's amazing how quickly our kids learn these practices, these habits. Just last week at communion, Stacy and the kids came forward, and she was holding Joshua in her arms, and after she tore off a piece of bread, Joshua reached out and tore off a piece of the bread, and then she, I think before she had even dipped her piece in the wine, Joshua went and dunked nearly his entire hand and the entirety of the bread into the cup as well. He was rather surprised when he put it then into his mouth and it was real wine uh, but he knew at two years old what does it mean to participate to be involved in the family of God to eat the family meal he knew what it was because what qualified him to participate 
is need, his need to be a part of the family. Children have this amazing way of reminding us of our need, our need to be seen, our need to be known, to be loved. I think this releases us from pretense, from our elitism, from our snobbery. It refocuses our eyes away from us and our own personal needs to look to the needs of those around us. Kids show us how to live in complete dependence. They remind us of our need for one another, to live in community with others, to belong to a family, especially the family of God. I think it's a wonder that God would invite us into his family at all. We humans, even adults, are anything but efficient. In our Lenten devotional book, uh, Backyard Pilgrim, Matt Canlis talks about creation. And when God created children for himself, he says God involved his children because he would rather garden with us than garden alone. Gardening with God taught Adam and Eve that they were primarily made for relationship relationship with God and with other people and with all of creation. We are made for creation. That is our base need that we have. And so in affirming that children participate in the life of the church and in our family rites and rituals, we proclaim that everyone is created to be in relationship with God. That's what we're trying to do here at the table, provide a seat for everyone at the table of God's grace. It's remarkable to me that Jesus, God in the flesh, with all that he had to do on his mission and being here in the world, would take time for children. I would think he had so many other more important things to do, but Jesus embraces little children as a part of that. Children are always inviting us grown-ups into their worlds. They don't ask us to perform or change or be someone we are not but they invite us to play with them, to lose ourselves, to lose our pretense, our seriousness with which we take them. What a grace it is to lay down our pretension for a few minutes or hours and get lost in play and relationship with them. Jesus also invites us into his life, into his life of play, to be in his presence without pretension and full of play. In doing so, he reminds us that we are children of our Heavenly Father who longs to be with us. Even now, through the presence of the Holy Spirit, he is a God who is not far off, but is wrapping his arms around us, embracing us, blessing us, loving us. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful that we can come to you, that you see our need of relationship, You see our needs around us, and you long to gather us into your arms. You say that so many times through Scripture, that you would long to gather us to yourself, that you could show us how much you love us. We thank you for including us and inviting us into your life, into the life of your family, to give us a place to be, to come to rest, to know that we are loved Lord, and when we fall short of us of that, forgive us. Help us to be reminded of how we love you and how we need you. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.